The standard cultural solution is this, and this is what we see maybe in your life, the average person's life here, the majority of the world, is to play it safe. They choose standard transference objects, <clears throat> your parents, your boss, your leader, your political leader, your sports team, okay. and they try to be a good provider or a solid citizen. Hey, then your life had meaning, you were a solid citizen, you contributed to the taxes, uh, you, you, you had a good job, you paid your dues, okay. Um, and he earns his species mortality, immortality as an agent of procreation. He did his duty, okay, and now he popped out some babies, okay, and he's, he's an agent of collective immortality. He's achieved immortality collectively by being part of something, a group that's bigger than him, like a country or something. This is the standard person's way of getting out of it. This is how they numb it, and this is the illusion they live under, thinking that their life has meaning this way. So, power to them. Great. You're living the great illusion. There's nothing I can do for you. Stay inside the matrix. Enjoy. And meanwhile, no one will, all of the things that they think are, that matter don't actually matter. They work really hard because they think it matters whether they, you know, uh, make that project for the company or whatever. You know, if, if he dropped down dead, they'd find someone else to fill that role and they might deliver it a month late and get done. He don't matter. He might, he'll matter to his baby, but the baby will grow up as many kids do now, single parent family, right? Makes dudes, he's got like his neuroses or whatever, just like everybody else, gets on in life, has kids, and you know, they forget, they forget. <clears throat> this is not a hard argument to make, it's just one that we don't want to confront. Okay, but that's the standard cultural solution. Let's just ignore it and find meaning in being a good provider and a solid citizen and working for the country, working for the company. And then popping out some babies. That's our duty to the species. Okay. Why do people want to have babies so bad? I, I mean, I, why do I want to, let's talk about me. Why do I want to have a baby bad? The natural thing for a man who wants to have a baby is because he wants to see what, I don't know, well, how would you say it? Like, see what you would look like. I don't know, see what, see what the baby would be like. To be able to pass down your knowledge and to, you know, why? Why don't you adopt? Why don't we have like clamoring for adoption? <clears throat> because the adopted child will be less of us than our biological child. <coughs> we do it for charity, you know, but it would be less, there's less desire naturally <coughs> because it wouldn't be an immortality vehicle as powerful as an actual biological copy. Okay, so that's the standard cultural solution anyway. The artist's solution, <clears throat> I hinted at this over lunch. The artist's solution is isolation. Starts with isolation. He separates himself from the herd. He's like, <clears throat> look, you fucking sheep. I see they're all sheep. They're all in this illusion. I am Neo. I will be taken out of the matrix. I will leave, right? And so he does. And he takes on this gargantuan task of consciously and critically fashioning his own framework <clears throat> for, for meaning, for being more than just an insignificant collection of atoms. This exposes the person to a sense of being completely crushed and annihilated because he has to carry so much on his own shoulders. And so most artists throughout human history were not appreciated in their lifetimes and they went mad. Mozart died a pauper without his own grave. So many, so many artists were not, never appreciated until he died. So nowadays, you know, you think he's an artist because he's got a million views, he's making millions of dollars. Um, so. As far as arts are concerned, that's not a mark of an artist. Okay, that's business. <clears throat> but what does an artist do? What we mean here is the artist says, I will step out of this madness 
and fashion meaning for myself. The average man gives heroic, his heroic gift to his society, but the artist fashions a peculiarly personal gift. Maybe it's this bizarre artwork that nobody understands, or maybe it's his music, or whatever it is, his, his thing, his art. And it, art always has to have a production. It's, it's a creation. Right? And that could be a novelist, or any kind of art. We, we mean this very broadly. It could even mean it's a technologist, <clears throat> right? an Elon Musk or an inventor. Right? He leaves that prototype before his death. Or something like that, right? <clears throat> he leaves it. And the judges of it are not society, per se. They may not appreciate it, as they often will not if it's truly innovative art. Like Steve Jobs says, the market doesn't know what they want until I give it to them. <laughs> right? That's a real artist speaking there. What he's doing is he's aiming partly over the heads of average men. They can't appreciate it. They're sheep. They're animals, like I've said, right? They don't know it. <laughs> Go over. And what is he doing? If nobody appreciated the iPhone, what would happen? Well, he would say they're stupid, they don't know good art, and then the artist in him would die if they have to change the damn device to appeal to those dummies who have no taste. They'll have to make a Microsoft item. <laughs> right? I have to make it look usable, that sucks. I want it to be completely glass with no buttons, that's cool. All right. And if they don't appreciate that, well, well, fuck them. Okay, so he's got lucky that in his lifetime he was appreciated, but oddly, he died before the greatest explosion of Apple, and they're still building in, in value, right? It's an amazing thing. And the thing is, just like earlier, he will be appreciated by anonymous people he doesn't know, okay, anonymous future people. His legacy is left. Meanwhile, he died quite young, relatively, right? We say that tragically, sadly, whatever. He fashions this peculiar personal gift as a justification for his own heroic identity. Now, at some degree, he must have been obsessed with the art. He must have had to create it, no matter what. Even if they didn't let them, even if they couldn't sell it, he will make it. And then they'll have a dumbed-down version for the masses. You know, whatever. I don't, luckily, we enjoyed it. <clears throat> but it's always aimed partly not at the people here, not at the sheep, but some ideal. <clears throat> the artist is the, the only way out of the human conflict for the artist is full renunciation. <clears throat> to give one's life as, as a gift to the highest powers, to the absolute beyond. That's the artist's solution. And most of society considers artists to be mad to be crazy, to be insane, because they are actually aiming not for the people, but for this absolute beyond, which is really in their heads, uh, you know, projecting into the future, that gives their present life meaning. Okay, and I'll show how, actually, so it's five, let's keep going then, I'll just end, it's supposed to be a break, this was supposed to be the break an hour ago. Okay, so, the artist and the crazy person are very similar, and the artist and the normal person is very similar. Um, they're just smarter. <laughs> okay. So the neurosis, taking it back to neuroses, I've talked a lot about this over the past couple of years, is actually repression. Repre and it's important to know, repression is normal. Repression is normal because we have to protect ourselves from the chaos of existence, of our, of our limited ability to control this existence of nature and of ourselves and of our human bodies. So it's normal self-protection, and, and it results in creative self-restriction. Because if, we if we were to actually moment-to-moment -moment confront this, we wouldn't be living the lives we live. The average person would not. The well-adjusted man partializes the world. He, he, he splits it up. He categorizes. He makes sense of the world in order to have comfortable action, in order to live comfortably in this world, to get on in life. The norm, normal man bites off what he can chew and digest of life and no more. That's the theory. They could just be dumb. 
But the theory is they put blinders on because it's too painful. And that gets uncovered in psychoanalysis. When they go through the unconscious and they start to tear apart these traumatic memories that have formed their personality, the, the character that they think is them is actually just a reaction to repression or, and the result of repression, blinders. So the average person has blinders and they live the great, li the great lie about life. The great lie about life, not the great life about life, the great lie about life. The neurotic is, let's define it as any lifestyle that begins to constrict you too much, that prevents free forward momentum, that prevents new choices or growth that a person wants or needs. You think, that sucks. That sucks to be a neurotic, doesn't it? I don't want that. Well, guess what? A neurotic is simply a well-adjusted man waking up. Every brilliant person is a little bit crazy because he sees, like I do, I'm a little bit crazy, he sees the meaninglessness of your life, 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 of my life. What's the point? Give me the gun. I'm not going to kill you first because that would be bad. Right? So, that's crazy. And then you say, okay, let's do some psychoanalysis. That person's smarter than you. That person's smarter than the average person. Okay, so that's interesting. Neurosis is actually the cracks in the system. The normal repression is cracking. Because we keep all of this, the normal person is just blind. The neurotic person starts to see shit. Now there are different reactions to neurosis. You might become an evil person, like I just illustrated. You might become a nar narcissistic person who's gonna kill people, right? You might become a psychopath. Um, or you might become an artist and say, fuck the world, I'll do my thing. Neurotic individuals grasp the ontological horns. Ontology is about being, the beingness of, okay, so the, the, the paradox of being. Some people are unable to separate, to individuate, and they are crazy. Some people are unable to unite and to merge, and so they're anti-social crazy. All right, so there's, there are different types. There's artist, the artist type has trouble repressing and narrowing down, restricting his life, his understanding, and his vision. He has too vivid an imagination. He takes in too much experience. He sees too large a chunk of the world, and so he is also neurotic. Steve Jobs was neurotic. Elon Musk, a visionary, is neurotic. It's going on and on about AI. Most of the world doesn't care. He's bothered by that. Gifted children, for those of you who were or who knew one, one of the greatest signs is that he's always depressed. Gifted kids are bothered by a lot of stuff they shouldn't be bothered by. Hey, why don't you just play with the Tonka truck? Do you know what happened, what's happening to the environment? Do you know all the CO2 that's killing us? That's a sign of a gifted child. The, the armor of repression is cracking. He's bothered by these things because he sees the cosmic significance. He sees the insignificance of this life and that bothers him. Okay, and then he has to pour himself into something that matters for this life to matter. Okay, another one is it's a guy who laughs at all kinds of weird shit. Okay, or, you know, so you start to see this, right? I don't have to get into how to identify gifted people, but the artist has trouble holding it together of living the lie. But the average person lives a lie. I'm tired of coaching the lie. So many, most of the guys who come to me are just wanting to learn how to live the lie better. Right, how do I self-perpetuate? How, how do I get ego validation from club bitches who mean nothing? Fuck, kill me now. I don't want to teach that. I do not want that to be how I spend my days on this planet. The little time that I have because my life means nothing anyway. Why do some suffering? Why perpetuate stupidity? So I've, I'm trying to get out of that meeting 
the 4D was part of that, getting out of that, going there and hearing the truth. So, the average person lives the, the life of a, the lie of his life. For the artist, though, creative, the creative work is done under compulsion. And we, we give creative people a social license to be obsessed. We think that's cool. Well, nowadays, it used to be we would just throw them in the dungeon or something. But now we think that's cool, as long as they produce something that we appreciate. Uh, even stuff we don't appreciate, so like modern art. What the fuck is that? Okay, hey, that's cool. You're obsessed by it. That's cool. Um, by the way, an artist doesn't just produce art. Conor McGregor is an artist. You know, he's famous for that quote. This is not talent. This is an obsession. It's obsession. That martial art is creative. The well-adjusted man requires the obsession of work to keep him going crazy. So let's take a step back and look. Okay. So we had the industrialized, industrialized age, right? And so sort of we're living out the results of the industrialized age as we move into technology. Soon there is no more industrialization. It will be all technology. As you know, you're trying to speed that up. Okay. So pretty soon we won't go to the factory anymore. The, the modern factory was a desk and a cubicle. That's the modern factory, right? Because we replaced real factories with actual robots. Soon those people will re be replaced by robots. Anyway, the well-adjusted, so that's a, that's, that's a caricature, right? So the, your job could be um, in front of an iPad on, I don't know, standing, it doesn't matter, right? So you go to this day job to make money. And maybe you enjoy it, maybe you enjoy it like 60% of the time, 70% of the time. <coughs> you need that to keep from going crazy. And that's what we were asking, right? Once AI takes over, what the fuck were we all going to do? Assuming they don't kill us all or turn us into batteries like in Matrix. Okay? So we're still alive. What do we do? Well, we might have Star Trek. No one works. There's no money. You can make anything you want by saying computer, Earl Grey, hot, and it just makes it right. Or you can go to a simulator and you can experience anything you want. Right? That would be really sexual. I, I don't know. So there's that. There's Star Trek. That's the utopia. Then there's Star Wars. So we descend into war with other species and shit like the other races. Okay, so those are two ways of, there's utopia and dystopia. So what will happen? Well, the craziness of these activities is exactly the craziness of the human condition. They're right for us because the alternative is natural desperation, repeated vaccination. They are repeated vaccination against madness. Give them something to do, goddammit. So Jordan Peterson in these lectures, I keep hearing him say, like, there are people who go crazy. The best thing you can do is to teach them how to get on in life, how to get out of bed when they're depressed, how to just get to work and do something. Just do something. Basically, he's saying, just numb them with work. That works for the average person. If he's not well-adjusted, you can make him well-adjusted by giving him a job. And then he has a purpose. It can't be really suffering kind of job, but it's, it'll give him something to do. He wakes up every morning. He might hate it, as most people hate their jobs, right? You go to the order of man group. They are all blue collar workers, you know, there's like Trump supporters, no offense. But they, you know, they go on there, they all have their guns. What's this? Ice. What is this? Someone order ice? Oh yeah, maybe. I'm almost, oh wait, maybe. Okay, since we're gonna have to cut this anyway. Jill, did you order ice? No. Oh man, this. Where was I? Oh yeah, yeah, work. The absurdity of work. So. Yes, um, they show up, they do this thing. You can kind of see, you've probably seen other uh, deep movies or some uh, like depictions of how meaningless uh, a day job can be, right? And how most people's day jobs are meaningless. An easy way now, we're, we're you know, 2017. You think back to the beginning of the industrialized age 
age when fathers started to leave the homes and didn't do apprenticeships anymore and weren't doing their swordsmiths or whatever the fuck they used to do. And they got into a bus to the factory and hundreds of them got in the assembly line and put shit together. Right? And then you had the war effort that really drove that industrialized economy. And you think about the factory worker, right? Honest work gets that, whatever, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing here, some machine tool, right? Walks to work, puts in the time. And it's interesting because in Ayn Rand's Fountainhead, when everything went to shit for Howard Rourke, he went to the mines and just for months, just just to, that's a kind of solution. When everything is crazy, one thing you can do is to do work because work gives your life a purpose. Tomorrow, you got to get up and do that. Yeah, I mean, it's meaningless if you step back and think about it, but it makes you busy. Most of the world is doing meaningless work. We call them well-adjusted, <laughs> but it's necessary. The cause of Sui project is necessary so that everybody doesn't go crazy. So you wonder what, so going back to that question, what's gonna happen with AI when AI takes over all the functions of human being? We might just go crazy. And one of the things was, uh, we were talking about, what if our lifespans go to 200 years? Whatever, 300 years. Okay, then we'll, actually we'll talk about that next. Um, so the terrifying truth is the human life may not, may not be more than a meaningless interlude in a vicious drama of flesh and bones that we call evolution. The necessity of the Kazasui project of, human, of humanly created meaning is, well, is necessary, right? I get a lot of slides, I'm just gonna rip through these real quick here to get to the discussion. The cultural illusion of the average man is necessary. It's a necessary ideology to justify the self, a heroic dimension that is life itself to us animals that understand abstract concepts like symbols. If you're just an unthinking, unsymbolic animal like a dog, you don't have to worry about it. Your life has meaning just in fetch, okay? We aren't like, unfortunately, we're not that dumb. We we're symbolic animals, fuck. We evolved to our own despair. It's interesting to imagine the first homo sapiens that had brains big enough to know that they were conscious. That's weird. Okay, so to lose security of the heroic cultural illusion is to die. That's one of the theses of the escape from death, right? So the cultural illusion is necessary for us to get on in life. So the modern history of the neurosis is neurosis has become a widespread problem in the modern world. Um, because of the disappearance of convincing dramas of heroic apotheoses of men, of, of man, like Christianity, the death of religion has resulted in neurosis. We can't just say our life has meaning in heaven anymore, as we did for uh, thousands of years. We can't just say that the sun god, Ra, gives our life meaning, that we sacrifice our wheat to him or whatever it is, right? Or we can't give ourselves to human labor to make a pyramid or whatever it is, because that gives us immortality. Modern man also cannot find heroism in everyday life anymore, as men used to in history, by doing their daily duty of raising children, working and worshiping, and then dying after 30 years. That was a pretty simple life. We didn't have to step out of that and ask the deep questions. Modern psychology makes, oh, makes the cause for personal unhappiness as the person himself, and then he is stuck with himself. The reason you're unhappy is because of your thoughts. But all the psychoanalysis in the world won't allow a person to find out what? Who you are! Why you're here on the earth! Why you have to die! 
And then how can I, what do I do with this? How can I make my life meaningful? And how can I be victorious? Psychoanalysis has limited, is limited because it limits itself to the life history of the person. And within your life history, you, you'd have to step outside your life history to give your life meaning, like religion does. Psychoanalysis can't do that. Individual unhappiness is, well, it can't do that. It can, but it's limiting itself. So individual unhappiness arises because of the natural world and the person's relationship to it as a symbolic animal. We will die. Nature doesn't give a fuck. We're going to be lost in history. And the eclipse of secure communal ideologies of redemption. In other words, the death of the church, the death of communal religions, and so forth. What is the ideal then? What are you striving for? I'm rushing through this just to get it done. But um, anyway, I, just so you know, I would spend more time. But the ideal for mental health, what is the purpose of all that analysis? Well, the lived compelling illusion that does not lie about life, death, and reality is what we are supposed to be living to say that you are mentally healthy. An ideal that's honest enough to follow its own commandments like don't kill other people and don't take the lives of others to justify yourself. Follow that shit, live your compelling illusion, and you're good. So most coaching and most uh, psychoanalysis considers itself successful when you can get on in life and not be too depressed. Because you're living this illusion that your life matters. This is a great outcome of UPW, is to believe that your life has meaning. You make of your life what you want. Go out and get it. Yeah! All right, so that's, that's good. That's success. All right, that's mentally healthy. Schizophrenia, it's a great example of what we consider to be mentally unhealthy, is an extreme frontier of, hum of the human condition. If we go multiple personality disorder, that's even more extreme, I think. But um, as a desperate solution to the problem of our evolutionary dualism, Right, between that we want to be significant, but we're not. That we want to be special, but we're just food for worms. But man cannot get rid of his body, even if he throws it away. How does he get rid of his body? He literally leaves his body and enters a new personality. Technically, it's still the same body, but he doesn't know it. So the schizophrenic woman who on the way to the therapist's office says to her therapist, I think I got raped, doesn't know. How? How can you not know? It's your body. How? You leave the body. To escape this creatureliness, terror. And so the crazy people are smarter than you, than us. Because they see it. Their reaction to it sucks. It's not very pleasant for them. Crazy people aren't having a great time generally. But they like, and she's like, I think I got raped. I don't know how. While she was being raped, she left her, left her body. New personality, boom. Trauma, reaction, splinter. Okay. So that's an extreme frontier of that, but you can't even leave the body. She's still stuck there, so she looks down. Shit, I think I got raped, what is this? Okay, so you can't leave your body, you're stuck. Low self-esteem and mental illness. Low self-esteem is the central problem of a mental illness. This is what you're told, right? This is what you hear over and over. Um, I can reference so many people, but all of the people that you've been looking up to for mental health, they'll be, they're giving, well, not all, but many of them, are the popular ones that I know the former pickup artists or reform players are trying to read. They're wrong. They haven't gone far enough. They read Nathaniel Brandon, they think self-esteem. That's it. That's what I need. Self-esteem is the central problem. Low self-esteem is greatest when, he, well, it's, let me start off with the problem. Low self-esteem is greatest when the heroic transcendence of fate is in doubt. When he doubts his own immortality, when he doubts the abiding value of his life, when he can't believe his having lived really makes any cosmic difference, then he has low self-esteem. Why? 
My life means nothing. I am nothing. I am nothing. That's low self-esteem. Right? So depression from, comes from sheer terror of individuation, of difference, of being alone, of losing support, and, and of losing support of the delegated power. The life lies, Adler calls it, is, a ne is necessary for most men to operate. How do you take the depressed, low self-esteem person and, and make him have mental health? You tell him the lie. His life matters. People love you. You're, you're a hero. You can be anything you want. You got it. Okay, so the urge to immortalization and self-perpetuation by pleasing the other, by conforming to the code of behavior he represents, we get it from a small family circle or we get it in our love object, the girl that we love or whatever, right? The codependent relationship. We might get it in our babies. Whatever. Gives us something to live for. I matter now because that person loves me. I matter now because I'm part of something bigger than myself called the family, called CrossFit. I think it's part of like why communities are so popular, right? You give them a greater identity. Or I matter because I lay my life on the altar of, what was that Lincoln's letter to the, to the mother who lost all four of her sons? Um, the famous example of great prose. So, what was it? So laying your, laid a sacrifice so, such a heavy sacrifice on the altar of whatever for the country, right? So, and that we, we subsume our lives, they have meaning because we gave our lives for this cause, which is the United States of America. Okay, so, but self-esteem is the problem, is the organismic problem. So we have the elemental physical experience of the infant. His, his experience gives him confident narcissism, a sense of invulnerability, if he wasn't abused as a baby, right? So he's like, I can do this, right? I can, I can stand on my own two feet, I can walk, I can do this. He derives his power, he derives, it derives this from the power of the other. So his mom and dad are like, yeah, you can do this, yeah, you got it, yeah, and he's like, yes, I can. And he derives it from these three things, by the way. So the first is derives it from the power of the other. He derives it from the secure possession of his own body as a safe locus under his own control, which means he can control his body, he can move his legs like this. Wow, I can do it, because I can do this. Okay, so that's another thing the baby does. And then finally, as the baby grows up, the meaning of his life project, his life immort his immortality project, Kazasui project, the symbols and dramatizations of our transcendence, of our animal vulnerability. We matter, we won't just die and become food for worms, our life matters. Okay, the transcendence of our animal vulnerability. Do we need refresh of towels and things? Uh, yeah. She has more ice. Oh, wow, they're really into the ice here. Uh, yeah, you can just come on in and come into the bedroom. Thanks. Ice? Ice? Why is there so much ice? I have no idea, honey. Some guy came along and just gave us ice. Yeah, he just like knocked the door real loud, just like, here. Here's your ice. But this thing is dirty. Oh yeah, it's got peanuts. I did, I did. Because we don't have a bowl. Don't worry, they, did, they kept the ice in the package, so you just open it. We're not cutting this, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here, let's get the ice out. Oh, I don't, know. I don't know how that works. Okay, back to it. Uh, right. As an adult, this is how he derives his meaning of his, I have self-esteem because I, now I have this organismic project. I have this project. Uh, that gives my life meaning. I can do it. I have purpose. Blah blah blah. And then he falls into this trap. Can you uh, answer? 
So then we, uh, we deal with this problem. Now we have individual freedom versus species determinism. What does this mean? Man wants to achieve something more than mere animal succession. He doesn't want to just be a mere fornicating animal that all the meaning of his life is simply that he can put out some sperm and have another baby and then he dies because as far as nature is concerned, that's his only purpose. Okay, so we treat animals that way, by the way, right? Like we'll, we'll raise an animal that's relatively dumb, make it sire some more babies, and then when it starts to get sick, we just kill it. Right? That's, that's how nature cares about the animal existence, just to keep perpetuating animals. We get really sad when an endangered species is the last of a species and dies off and there's no more of that species. That sucks because there's no more of them. We'll keep them alive artificially, not because they're cuddly and cute, they might be, that's incidental, but because it'd just be nice to have this damn thing around, right? And so we just need it to fucking fuck. Get those damn pandas to fuck. <laughs> Pandas would have died out a long time ago if we didn't make, if we didn't have reser uh, reserves for them. Uh, reservation, anyway. So, he perpetuates himself and his offspring who may resemble him and carry his genes, but, you know, truly, he does not feel that he is truly self-perpetuating, is perpetuating his own inner self. His distinctive personality, his spirit. No dad wants to hear, that's your clone, now die. He's like, wait, 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 I'm special. My kid ain't me. I'm me. Right, so... We're not really making copies of ourselves. So we want to keep living on. So it can't be. So we say to biology, we say to nature, my whole existence is not just to have babies. Fuck you, I matter. Right, like the clone, the Fassbender clone. He's like, I'm not just here to be the original of the clones. I matter, let me live. What's interesting is, for, in teleportation for sci-fi, the way it works is, I don't know if this will actually be the case, but in sci-fi, the teleporter goes and it takes a copy of the configuration of your atoms. And because we can like 3D printing, print out atoms or whatever the, the verb is, we go and we make a physical copy of you, the configuration of atoms that you were over here. We don't actually take the physical, like that's the sci-fi theory, right? They don't actually take the physical body, somehow go boom, plop them down on another planet. They take a copy and then the, the, tele, the teleporter thing makes another copy appear. Okay, so that's crazy. And so the great Derek Parfit book about personal identity, what if they fucked that up? So they, they, they take the copy of you, and they go, and there's another you over there on that planet, but they forgot to destroy the original you. So you're looking at that you, and this planet is about to get destroyed. That's why you got teleported out. And you're like, fuck, hey, you're over there. You're gonna be okay. You are gonna be okay. You made it to the mothership. But the you, the original, they didn't destroy you, so you gotta be here. How do you feel about that? That was the question that you get in philosophy 101. Well, actually, there's an advanced philosophy course in personal identity. But that's a deep question that philosophers like to ask. We do that kind of thing. We sit around and ask these questions. Does it matter to you that the copy is safe, but you're gonna die? You care about, the, so the, the intuition is most human beings care about themselves here, even though there's a copy of them over there that will continue their legacy. You care somehow about the original atoms. The original atoms that you're inhabiting right now, or that make up you, I mean, right now. You don't like the situation. Okay, that's this. Let's assume that that's a perfect copy, but your son is not a perfect copy. So you still don't give a fuck. You still want to matter. So the universal human need exists to lift, <coughs> the universal human need to lift your life onto a special immortal plane beyond the cycles of life and death of all the organisms exists. That species determinism, you want individual freedom. You don't want to be just another another instance of the species. You want to be individual. You want to matter. And that's why sexuality throughout human history has been taboo. And this is part of Freud's point, taboo in totem, and it goes through all of psychoanalysis. 
why is sexuality always fetishized in almost every culture? It's a special thing. Not because it's just a procreative thing. If it were just a procreative thing, it would be celebrated. Why is it taboo? Why is it forbidden? Why is it dirty? Why is it dark? It's because that is a reminder to us that our lives don't matter, except to pop out more babies. But we don't like that. We want our life to be more than just popping out babies. Okay, so what does our life matter? So we then find Kazasui projects. Because our life has to matter, we have to make it matter. To create all by oneself a spiritual, intellectual, and physically similar replica of oneself is the perfectly individualized self-perpetuation or immortality symbol. Holy shit. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm not going to unpack it. I'll leave that for later. Um, but just, okay. So then there's, here's some examples. Okay, examples of Kazusui projects. Something like a secret, right? It could be a secret ritual, a secret club, a secret formula. These create a new reality for man. These allow him to transcend and transform everyday, the everyday world of nature. So throughout society, the elite, they have a secret. The elite have their clubs. We now call them like country clubs or whatever clubs, membership clubs, whatever. We do that so that our lives have meaning, so that we're special. Anything that, that makes your life special, a club, or now I'm on the insiders, whatever. That's one thing that throughout human history has existed. Is, and, and it's driven by something secret, not something, some knowledge, a ritual, whatever, that not everybody has access to. That makes me special. Okay, that, that, that's a Kazusui project. Ritual. This is something that was very common in Asian culture, especially in China. Ritual is the man-made form of things prevailing over the natural order and taming it, transforming it, and making it safe. That becomes Kazusui project. It's bizarre what you discover in history among ancient peoples, okay, pre-modern peoples, where ritual was so, they thought that by doing certain things with their arms and having a procession of, of whatevers or slicing the throat of a lamb or something, that they could absolve themselves of sins, that real things were happening metaphysically because they did things in a certain order. So that we have a basic ritual. This is, for those who know Chinese history or philosophy, the important word li, okay, ritual. Okay, so you might've heard this. Uh, so li is, uh, very basically is, you hand up, put out your hand, the other person puts out his hand and shakes. Here's a verbal ritual. How do you do or how are you? The normal response is, how do you do? And now that's lost. People say, good, instead of how do you do? But Instead of well, yeah, instead of well. <laughs> um, but that's a ritual. That doesn't mean anything. It just means I acknowledge you. Like, if you start to say, well, oh, man, you know, tell me tell you. Hey, have a seat. You, know, you start to tell them how you really are. You answer it as a real question. You have broached the ritual. The ritual is simply a hello. Okay. Um, and so ritual gives our life meaning. And has, has given... Given, given pre-modern people's lives meaning for many, many years. Of course, you see any emperors or kings in history, the entire thing was ritual. To make somebody believe that a real human being was the son of heaven, this happened in China, it happened in Japan. They weren't real, they weren't just human, they were deities. They were partly, uh, partly gods. Okay? Or they, for that moment, when they entered the temple of heaven, you know, so if you've been to Beijing, you probably saw the Temple of Heaven, and you enter that particular spot in it, you then became the God figure, and you accepted sacrifices of wheat, of whatever. and the priests, of course, did this in, in Israel and all this. They actually had rituals, which were bizarre. It was like abracadabra stuff. But that turned the natural order into something significant. Okay, and that was a en masse Kazusui project. That was, a, that was a project that gave our lives as a people, hundreds of thousands or millions of people, meaning. And we see this now in, modern, in the modern world. 
you know, examples of not just like when we get together at UPW or something like, yeah, but when your sports team wins, right? So Robbins uses this as an example of ridiculousness. You didn't do shit. You know, but like we won, we won. And why? Because the ritual of the game, and then no one's like, it's a football game. Nothing's really at stake here. But we, everything is at stake there. For those whose lives are meaningless, we play games. And we imbue those games with life or death significance. Then we can live our insignificant lives. Okay, take a break. Back from the break. So we have three slides, three slides here. So that first break was just to let it all sink in. I bring it together, the conclusion. We have a big discussion and, 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 and we'll end and go for dinner. So the heroism is impossible. The ch how does it begin? The child represses himself. The child represses himself. He does not, he does not force to repress. He purposely says, this is too hard to deal with. Let me over here and pretend that shit don't happen. Or he tries different strategies that makes him, allows him to ignore this reality over here. I'll be the joker, you know, and then, oh, have, mom don't like joker. Okay, I'll, I'll be a pleaser and I'm just giving mom a back rub and she likes me now. Okay, I'll stay with that one. Pretending like all of the other shit that caused him to make those pivots didn't exist. Okay, so that's, a, and then at a deeper level, the child's inality, his, his realization of his physical body, that it does stuff that he can't control like shit, that sometimes he doesn't want to shit because it's smelly and that means he needs to get changed. But, and he's in the restaurant, so if he shits, they're not going to change him right away. And now he has to cry and that's not comfortable. So, but he can't control it. Oh, there we go. Oh, shit. Literally, right? Oh. And now it's coming on his leg. And the mom and dad are like, holy crap. Hey, take him to get him changed. Now he's all shamed because now everyone's looking at him. And, like, and he's like, ah, I'm a piece of shit. And he takes him and he cleans him. And now he's happy. Now he's okay. Right? But he can't control any of that. And then as he grows a little older, he knows he can't control mom and dad. He... You know, we don't know what, the, he's pre-verbal, baby, doesn't know what, we don't, we're trying to guess what he wants, and maybe he really wants to just be held, but we think he wants the bottles, so we stick a bottle in his mouth, he's like, nah, I don't want that, and they're trying to figure out what he wants. So, so that's a pretty trivial example. Eventually, he gets to the point where he realizes that he can't control the outside world. He can't even control his own physical body, and his body is going to die. It's, it, this is, this doesn't last. He can't control this, and it starts from the anus. That's the, that's the basic theory. Um, the dirtiness of that thing that he doesn't like, that he can't control, has no power over, and is peeing, of course. Um, the excretions of the dirt. Parts of himself that are so nasty and dirty that it must be thrown away. Um, and the whole time, not being in control. Nature doesn't, and then later on as an adult, he realizes trying to transfer the meaning of his life onto his parents, they're imperfect and can never fulfill that need for meaning in his life, and they hurt him. And he becomes different, becomes different, becomes different. The child is constantly repressing himself. The first fear that he's repressing is the fear of death. Not the fear of not being loved. Not the fear that he's not worthy. Those are secondary fears. The reason he's fearing not being loved, the reason he's fearing not um, being worthy is because if he's not loved, he's not worthy of being loved, he will be alone and will die. And that sucks. No one wants to die if they're alive generally, unless they are realizing this, and then they kill themselves. And so that, that actually, from a, from a philosophical perspective, suicide is rational. Okay, so then we get into transference. How does he live then? How does he deal with this existential dilemma? He wants freedom. He wants to be heroic, but he can't. So utopians, they want perfect freedom from inner constraint or outer authority, and they like the freedom of the self, the freedom of the self, I am unconstrained by anything. 
Unfortunately, we know the truth. Men need transference. So they transfer the responsibility for dealing with all this existential shit, the responsibility of dealing with the, the meaning of life onto something else that gives them meaning. Right? So it could be a political leader, it could be your group identity, and all of these are Kazusui projects. The postponement of death is not a solution for, for the problem of the fear of death. These still ought remain, no, there still ought remain the fear of dying prematurely. So even if you're like, hey, it's okay, but you're gonna, you're young, but you walk out there, you might get hit by a car, you might drop down dead. And sometimes you, you know, you see this, like I, my, my friend uh, who dropped dead at 14 years old, very healthy, and you know, she was probably one of the most physically fit out of all of us. Well, definitely, yeah, she was doing gymnastics meets and shit. Just dropped down dead. So, Condorcet in 1794, and I wanted to read this to, to the man who just walked out, who right, right, was sick and had to go home. Condorcet in 1794. A period must one day arrive when death will be nothing more than the effect either of extraordinary accidents or of the slow and gradual decay of the vital powers, and that the duration of the interval between the birth of man and his decay will have itself no assignable limit. In other words, we're, we'll be pretty much immortal, like the elves of Lord of the Rings, like the vampires of, we were talking about vampires at lunch of Anne Rice, of Wolverine. And he wasn't immortal, apparently, we find out in Logan, uh, but he lived a really fucking long life and he couldn't kill himself. And it's sort of like the dilemma of the Hulk. You know, so one of the Avengers movies talked about how he tried to kill himself, put a gun in his mouth and shot it, and the Hulk spit it out. And that, why, we'd be like, the average guy would be like, dude, that's awesome, man. Why aren't you super happy? The smart person understands this. The smart person understands the despair and the meaningless of a life where you cannot end. Okay, so then what happens is death becomes hyper-fetishized as a source of danger. Because, and so we were talking about this, the longer your lifespan is, the greater the, the danger of death. The bigger the meaning is of ending that life. And so it makes no sense to me and to smart people. Well, actually, it is tragic to us. It is even more tragic when an elf dies versus a human being. Because right? the elf had forever. And so they keep showing you in those movies, and this is what Tolkien, who was a brilliant philosopher, actually was showing, was whenever the elves die, the camera lingers over them a long time because Peter Jackson is understanding what Tolkien's saying. The sacrifice that an elf makes is a hundred times greater than the sacrifice a dwarf, or especially a human, I don't know how long dwarves li live actually, but he, uh, it's much longer than the human sacrifice. The human just gave up an extra 50 years he was gonna live, right? The elf gave up eternity. There is no co comparison. It is a god dying, and that is tragic. Okay, so that makes it, that's crazy. We, if, what if we became elves? What would we do? Well, we would start, we would be looking for some way to die gloriously. And that makes sense for them from battle. And that was Tolkien's, one of his great contributions to philosophy, thinking hard about immortality and showing it. Okay, so great quote here that I will end with. A person spends years coming into his own, developing his talent, his unique gifts, perfecting his discriminations about the world, broadening and sharpening his appetite, learning to bear the disappointments of life, becoming mature and seasoned, going through aura transformation, taking every course, transforming, changing, going through stage after stage, growing, growing, growing and maturing. Finally, a unique creature in nature, standing with some dignity and nobility and transcending the animal condition, no longer driven, no longer a complete reflex, not stamped out of any mold. And then, 
The real tragedy is that it takes 60 years of incredible suffering and effort to make such an individual, and then he is good only for dying. And then right at the height of his powers, his body breaks down in death. And all that arduous work, and it doesn't even have to be a breakdown. You walk out in the street at the peak of the hard work, boom, you're dead. Guess what though? Your startup that you worked so hard for and didn't get any sleep for sold for $100 million after you die. Don't worry about it though. Whoa, we love you. We write books about you. We write whatever. Who gives a fuck? You're dead. You don't get to enjoy that. But over and over and over, why do these people give a shit about what happens after they die? Because of the fear of death, the denial of death. They need their life to mean something. So they suffer in the now. It is simply a replacement for the religion of Christianity or some other religion. All, almost all religions, all the religions I know of and that are taught in world religions class are about the ap include the afterlife as a major, that make, the afterlife makes sense of the now. We've replaced that with legacy projects. That's another term for it I just came up with. But the Kazasui project. What makes your life meaningful? So we asked a friend, like, I asked him, if you're going to live 200 years, what would you do with the extra 100 years? Assuming you were only going to live 100 before, now you get extra, extra 100, what are you going to do with it? That's the Wolverine question. What are you going to do, Wolverine? You got an extra 100 years to live. Extra 100 years to kill people or to save people. What are you going to do? He's like, fuck this. I'm going in the forest. I don't want anything to do with any of you guys because none of it means anything. They all die in the end anyway. So actually, that's what happened to Logan, right? They all died anyway. And Picard, I can't remember, Professor X, Picard, is like, no, Logan, it means something. Your life means something. What happens to, what happens to Professor X? He gets killed like that. You've seen the movie, right? That's, I, I thought it was like a dream sequence, because how can you kill off Professor X like that? That's like so, there's no glory in that. He's just like an old man lying in bed, and boom. I hope I don't give away the movie. But <laughs> Oops, sorry, spoiler alert. But that could happen to you. Just after all the hard work, you don't get to get the, you don't get the, the what's the word, the, re, the rewards. Okay. He feels agonizingly unique. We, I should say we. And yet we know this doesn't make any difference as far as ultimates are concerned. We have to go the way of the grasshopper even though it takes us longer. There is no other slide after this. So. I submit to you the existential dilemma of life. One healing aspect of it from psychotherapeutic perspective is a lot of what we spend our lives doing don't matter, but we force them to matter and we suffer for it. Right, so that's, that's one thing you can do right away to ask yourself, am I enjoying what I'm doing now? If I died in the middle of this thing, would I enjoy it? Um, and then we still have to balance, what if I do live a really long time? I don't want to just be gorging myself on buffets all day because I want to enjoy the now. And so we have this balance. Um, I don't know really what to do with it. That's the denial of death. I highly recommend this book. It, it explains neurosis. It explains why there are crazy people. It explains why when we go through the process of psychotherapy with you or the, uh, revealing your unconscious, there's all kinds of dirt and trash in there. And maybe you want to get replugged back into the matrix and you don't want to know about it. It'd be better if you were just another sheep making your money, popping out a baby, and then dying. That's your choice. So I leave you with that choice, the existential choice. I hope you choose wisely. <laughs>